Lindsay Baum was a popular 10-year-old living in McCleary, a small town in Washington with a population of about 1,600 people. On Friday, June 26, 2009, Lindsay was on summer vacation. She attended an all-day pool party at her friend's house, and after the party wrapped, Lindsay and her friends headed to a local video store where they were spotted at about 8.15 p.m. Lindsay and her friend Kayla then went to Lindsay's place, where she lived with her mom, Melissa, and her brother, Josh. After bathing and getting dressed, Kayla and Lindsay headed out for Kayla's place to ask if Kayla could sleep over. When Kayla's mom refused, Lindsay left to make the walk back to her home at 319 Momsen Street. Somewhere along the way, she disappeared. Around 10 years later, her partial remains were found near Ellensburg, Washington. The murderer of Lindsay Baum has never been found. If you have any information about Lindsay's case, please call the tip line at 206-229-5055. Family and friends of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum want her back. She was on her way home from a friend's house last Friday when she disappeared from the small town of McCleary, Washington. The state patrol is scanning the ground by air. Searchers are combing the town on horseback and checking out nearby trails. This was an evil human being that saw my child and for whatever reason thought they had a right to take her. Melissa Baum's daughter, Lindsay, disappeared on June 26, 2009 just shy of her 11th birthday. FBI agents teamed up with local investigators to fan through McClary and find something that leads back to Lindsay Baum. I'm here today to share with you that we brought Lindsay home. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. There are no words. The fact is a monster stole my 10-year-old little girl and they murdered her and they dumped her like trash in the woods. So my fight now has turned from looking for my daughter to finding who killed her. I urge anyone that has any information, any knowledge of any kind to please come forward. We need, we need justice. Um, the people who did this to Lindsay deserve to be punished. And the children still out there, your children, deserve to be safe. And as long as we allow monsters like this on our streets, none of our children are safe. My name is Peggy Simmons, and this is Truth in the Shadow. I first found out about the disappearance of Lindsay Baum back in 2009, the weekend after she disappeared. I was visiting a friend in nearby Shelton, a 15-mile drive from McCleary, when asked if I had heard about the little girl who disappeared from the neighboring town. I had never even heard of McCleary in the 29 years of my life, living two counties away. Over the years, I would drive the lonely stretch of Highway 101 along the Hood Canal, stopping for gas at the same isolated station and I'd always check to see if Lindsay's missing poster was still hanging from the bulletin board outside. 
I thought it was almost impossible to live in Washington State and not know about this case, but I was wrong. As I began to talk about it with my local friends, it seemed like none of them had heard about Lindsay. Then in 2018, Grays Harbor Sheriff Rick Scott announced that Lindsay's partial remains had been found. Her remains were recovered in September of 2017, unknowingly, by some hunters in a remote portion of eastern Washington. Those remains were turned over to local authorities who in turn released them to the FBI where they were confirmed to be human and sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia for analysis for DNA. Because the remains were not associated with a specific criminal investigation, they were not analyzed for DNA until just recently. So just in the recent week, where we notified that the DNA collected from the remains matched the DNA submitted to the lab in 2009. Sheriff Rick Scott went on to say that because her remains weren't associated to any known cases that were open, they weren't looked into. What strikes me as odd with this comment is that Cody Haynes is still missing from that region. Is his case not open? What we did know for certain was that this missing person case was now upgraded to homicide. After hearing this announcement, I deviated from my weekend plans and I decided I needed to go visit McCleary. I felt compelled to see what it looked like, to get an accurate visual in my head. I stayed in Elma, a nearby town to McCleary, at the only motel, which came equipped with a train that would blow through about every hour or so. When I turned on the evening news, there was a report of a man arrested for attempting to kidnap a young woman in the nearby town of Montesano. His name was Isaac Gusman. It seemed like there was a lot of shady shit going on around here. Getting to McCleary the next day proved harder than I thought. I missed the exit off of Highway 108, and I had to make a U-turn. And then I missed the exit again, and somehow I ended up back in Elma. I then tried another route, and by sheer luck, I stumbled onto Simpson Avenue, which put me smack in the middle of McCleary. The town didn't look ominous at all. It looked pretty, but bland. It was clear I wasn't going to have any revelations about what had happened to Lindsay. Over the years, I'd followed the cases of many missing and murdered children, but clearly sitting at home and reading about them wasn't going to be enough for me. But what's a cosmetologist, musician, social worker turned economist to do? Start a podcast, of course. So in 2018, I turned what had been a somewhat obsessive habit into something that might help. A podcast focusing on missing and murdered children of the Pacific Northwest. The idea was to highlight cases that might otherwise linger on the unsolved shelves, with the hopes that the podcast might encourage listeners with information to contact law enforcement. Needless to say, Lindsay's was one of the first cases I covered. It also had the biggest audience response. People even reached out to me with tips and stories of their own and why they were interested, which usually stem from trauma and trying to make sense of it. I also met Melissa Baum, who set me straight about some errors I'd made on the episode, and she gave me a guided tour of the town of McCleary. Everything I learned from Melissa that day, not to mention the research I've done since, 
convinces me that this is a case that can be solved. So I'm taking another pass at Lindsay's story. This time I'm going to devote as many episodes as we need to bring justice to the case. And I'm naming the podcast Truth in the Shadow because one of the things that Melissa Baum said struck me profoundly. What is done in the dark will be revealed in the light. The truth is in the shadow. So we add more light and watch as the shadows fall away, leaving no room for anyone to hide. Melissa Baum moved to the town of McCleary, Washington in 2008, with a population of only 1,643 people. McCleary could consider itself the gateway to the Olympic Mountains, as well as the Pacific Ocean. On the face of it, the small town seemed like a good place to raise her little family. What Melissa didn't know was that under the small town facade teemed untold numbers of registered sex offenders. She was also unaware of the fact that back in 2003, a 17-year-old cheerleader had been stalked, abducted, and violently raped, or that the suspect in that case had never been apprehended. When it comes to McCleary, it's quite obvious that all is not what it seems. The town of McCleary was initially a logging camp. Established in 1898, McCleary was built on a railway line that transported timber from the densely wooded counties of western Washington to the harbor towns in the city. In 1906, Henry McCleary built a mill that on the site began to produce doors. And in 1923, the plant broke all records by producing over 300,000 doors in 60 days filling an average of six boxcars a day. In December of 1941, Henry McCleary sold the mill, as well as the town, to Simpson Logging. I grew up in an area that feels similar to this part of Grays Harbor. As a teenager in the 90s, I roamed the streets of Squim at all hours, hanging outside the local grocery store, or in the video store in small packs, just like Lindsay did. Much like Squam, McCleary is a little more than two square miles in size. In 1980, 1,419 people resided in McCleary and grew to 1,643 in 2010, which is a growth rate of 7.8% over those 30 years. That's not a lot. Uh, it seems like the town wanted to stay small. And in comparison, my hometown grew... 120% in those 30 years. Local residents tell us there's a distinction between legacy families who are multi-generational to this county and the new locals. These newcomers seek a quiet home life and they're generally commuting to work at the state's capital in Olympia or further to I-5 corridor. There's a general sense of distrust for new people in McCleary that I have experienced as a multi-generational local of my own hometown. The consensus being, you're new until you hit about the 20-year mark, and even then, you're still new. Melissa Baum, Lindsay's mother, was definitely a newcomer by McCleary standards. 
The recently single mother of two had relocated to McCleary from Tennessee. McCleary wasn't Melissa's first choice of a place to live, but she had grown up a county over and had support from friends and family. She needed it after her recent split from Lindsay's father, Scott. It was not an easy adjustment. Melissa was a single mother now, carpooling to work at a call center out of town. Her 12-year-old son, Josh, is on the autism spectrum, and there was no childcare or resources to assist Melissa while she was working. At the time of Lindsay's disappearance, Melissa's car sat broken down in the driveway, again. On the surface, 10-year-old Lindsay Baum was a happy and outgoing child. After she went missing, McCleary Police Chief Crum said that Lindsay was always out and about, and clearly the leader of her friend group. But Lindsay's mom, Melissa, says that Lindsay wasn't happy about her divorce from Lindsay's father, which was finalized in April of the year Lindsay went missing. There was also some really sketchy semen shit that was going on, too. Before going missing, Lindsay and a close friend reported to Melissa that they were being followed by someone in a white car. Then, one day, when she was in a bathroom stall near Beerbauer Park, she and another friend were walked in on by a man, and it freaked them out. This incident was reported to the local police department. And finally, to top the list, on May 29th, less than a month before she went missing, Lindsay wrote the following thinking something bad's going to happen. Her mood was listed as disturbed. Something sure seemed off, but for all of that, Lindsay seemed to be having a good summer. On Friday, June 26, Lindsay went to her friend's house, the Nelsons, for an all-day pool party. It's one of those above-ground pools that you can buy at a department store and it lasts a couple of years uh, above ground, and you fill it up with a hose. Now, around 8 p.m., things wrapped up at the pool party. Then Lindsay and a few pals headed over to the local video store. This was at about 8.15 p.m. There was about six girls together. They came in, walked around, looked at all the movies that they wanted to rent. Lindsay and a group of friends, including her close friend Kayla, then headed over to Lindsay's place on Momsen Street, about a block away. Once home, Lindsay bathed and got dressed again. She put her jeans on, a gray-blue hoodie, and her floral swimsuit top. Lindsay and Kayla then asked Mom Melissa if Kayla could stay for the night. Melissa was open to Kayla staying over as long as Kayla's mom approved. She then asked her son Josh to accompany Lindsay and Kayla on the short walk to Kayla's place. She would have driven the kids, but her car was broken down at the time. As the three kids headed out, Lindsay grabbed Josh's bike. She was trying to ride alongside the others, but the chain kept falling off. She was reduced to scooting along and decided ultimately to ditch the bike behind the Shell gas station at the corner of Momsen Street and Maple Street in a dense cluster of bushes. Josh was not happy about this at all. And who can blame him? The kids began arguing heatedly with each other as they walked. So much so that a woman who knew the family intervened. She sent Josh home, and she texted Melissa to let her know why she had done this. According to the records we've been able to acquire, that text went out at 9.31 p.m. 
Kayla and Lindsay landed at Kayla's house at 647 Maple Street a few minutes later. The home sits at the end of a dead-end street, and if you were to look at it, you would see a swath of forestry to the north. And at the end of the road is a water treatment facility. There's a small creek just across the street as well. It's a bunch of blackberry bushes and overgrown underbrush. And then there's another line of trees that completely blocks the view of the apartment building that's directly behind. Kayla's mom, Kara, said no to Kayla staying at Lindsay's. When the girls then asked if Lindsay could stay the night at Kayla's, they were denied again. Kayla's family was getting up early the next day, and Kara wanted a quiet night at home with her family, and she told Lindsay to get going before it got dark. An important note is that the sun set at 9.12 p.m. in McCleary that night, but as anyone in this region knows, due to our location on the equator, the last light is approximately an hour and 40 minutes past sunset. So we know that Lindsay was sent home after 9.30 p.m., but definitely well before 10, according to Kayla's mom, Kara. When Lindsay didn't show up back at home around 10 p.m., her mom, Melissa, started calling Lindsay's cell phone. And when Lindsay didn't pick up, she called Kayla's mom, Kara, and she discovered that Lindsay should have been home already. Melissa then discovered Lindsay's cell phone, charging in Lindsay's room. She realized there was no way to contact the 10-year-old. The sight of Lindsay's phone filled Melissa with dread. She called Kara, Kayla's mother and asked if Kara and her boyfriend Scott would drive around town looking for Lindsay. They both agreed. In the meantime, Melissa started searching the town on foot, but no matter where she or anyone else went, there was just no sign of Lindsay. At 10.50 p.m., Melissa called the McCleary Police Department and reported Lindsay Baum missing. I've traveled to McCleary many times over the last few years investigating the Lindsay Baum case, but just recently I realized I hadn't ever walked the route Lindsay took that night. So last week, my co-producer Tracy and I went to McCleary. We had decided to walk the route that Lindsay took on the 26th of June 2009. We were especially interested to see the route in relation to the persons of interest that have come to our attention. We're in the town of McCleary, Washington. Uh, this was the place where Lindsay Baum lived and disappeared from. And today I'm going on my weekly walk, it seems like, with my co-producer, Tracy Isaac. Who didn't record the last walk. Uh, I well, you know, I think that... <laughs> As invested as we are in this, it's not a bad thing to come back and, and keep walking it. I might be busy next Friday. So. <laughs> you don't, don't want to do it again? <laughs> I mean, maybe. Okay. It is nice. Yeah. So right over here is the little gray house here at 319 Momsen is where Lindsay was living at the time. And this is right at the corner of First in Momsen. Lindsay was scooting yeah. her bike. Yeah, she was on Josh's bike and the chain kept falling off. And so as we're, we're walking up on it right now is the Shell Station. Um, and it's right at the street of 3rd Street, which is their main street. But behind the Shell Station is a setting of bushes. So in these bushes is where Lindsay decided to stash that bike. Josh so, was not happy about that, of course. And I would not have been if I were him either. No. So he and Lindsay were now arguing. The next person to see Lindsay and Josh arguing 
and messaged Melissa Baum. Where did she live? She's about halfway, I would say. She saw them out of her window and came out and sent Josh home. And she texted Melissa to say, I hope you don't mind I sent Josh home. Police have the records when the friend texted Melissa to send Josh home, uh, which was stamped at 9.31 p.m. If we assume that that person sent the text immediately after sending Josh home, which, you know, one assumes she did, it means that Lindsay could not have arrived at Kayla's place earlier than 9.30, correct? Correct, right. And we're approaching 6th Street, and right on the corner of 6th Street is the Beehive Retirement Community Center. It takes up an entire city block, I would say. What they have is some people are in these apartments, where I suspect you're somewhat assisted, somewhat not. And these, these apartments look right out onto the, the sidewalk. Like, Lindsay would have absolutely passed this place. I came to this case through web sleuths. And early on, there was a guy who I've since met who came here and he found out that some of these apartments were empty and had not been searched by the police based on the people that he was speaking to at the Beehive. Um, and then there was also a person of interest that worked at the Beehive that came into play later. We're at 647 Maple, which is where Kayla lived. She arrived down to Kara and Michaela's house. One assumes after 9.30, right? After Based on that text sent by Melissa's friend. friend. Yeah. yeah. It's still, we're looking at more like 9.40 when she left. Yeah, 9.40 I think is safe. It's still very bright out at that time. She would have been work, walking on the right-hand side of the road. That's where she was seen. And on the right-hand side of the road, right next to us here, is of course the Beehive, the uh, assisted living center with all these doorways coming straight out onto Maple. Okay. That having been said, if anybody ran out and grabbed the kid on the street, I still think it would be very messy. Yes, I think so too, and loud. And there's, I mean, we know one thing about people sometimes that are retired is they have a lot of time to be able to look out the window and people <laughs> solve cases. So it make a lot of sense they would see something is just such a high visibility area. I've been speaking to some friends of Lindsay's and according to them on that Friday evening middle of the summer people would have been out yeah which is another reason why it's kind of weird to think that Lindsay got taken off of this very short stretch of road. There's way too many houses and it's so open and it's like if somebody had come from say the beehive say it's yeah. a worker or somebody it's still a walk and you still have to grab that person and you have your timing is going to have to be very good. You know, and that's that's if we're looking at it from the perspective of like a, you know, grabbing them and taking them versus luring them. Yeah. So which if somebody lured her into one of those apartments, that's a whole other ball of yeah. wax. Uh, sniffing dogs the day after she went missing apparently went from Kara's place and took a right on sick, which is going north, I believe and uphill, and it kind of makes sense because Lindsay's friend lived in that direction. So if Kayla was not able to come over, would Lindsay have turned right and headed towards Yeah. Well, it was about two blocks up. Two, three up. blocks up, yeah. I mean, and as a kid, I, I would probably go check that out. 
They're now between 5th and 6th, and it was around here somewhere that somebody who was heading eastbound... She was heading to work, wasn't she? was heading she? to work, the woman who was driving, So she yeah. kind of knew around about time of when she was heading that way. She, her um, testimony is that it was like 9.26, but that is oh. just not possible based on... Either she did not see Lindsay, and apparently she knew her to see her. Okay. She knew her, so I don't know. Is this the same woman that was driving down the street and had to go around a white vehicle yes. that was sticking out in the road? On exactly. Maple? That's right. So what basically okay. happened is Lindsay's walking on the right-hand side of the road. This woman passes Lindsay, who she recognizes, and then she almost immediately has to slam on her brakes and jerk her wheel because she almost uh, back-ends a white car that is sticking half out, halfway out into the street. The reason why this is relevant is because Lindsay was saying that she was being followed by yes. a yeah. white car before she went missing. and A lot of foreshadowing with Lindsay. I remember if she said SUV or... Yeah. I don't think she would have said SUV. She's a kid. If Lindsay was walking like we're walking, she would have had to have walked on the right-hand side of that car. Yeah. And that, if somebody was in the passenger seat of that car, they could have opened the door and stopped her right there been speaking to some friends and their feeling is that at the time even they might have gotten into a car if they thought they knew the guy even vaguely and this is sort of what we've been discussing like yeah, what if absolutely. it's somebody she knows to seek right well and or which, a friend's which, parent I mean and I've been that kid that's gotten into the car with somebody's parent I didn't know him but I knew his kids and that's why he said it was okay to ride with him and I was fine and Lizzie so, was a pretty, pretty exuberant kid you know, outgoing and maybe seeing that it's getting late, she would take a ride from somebody's parent. Yeah, a parent or a, a young, handsome-looking dude or... Yeah, yeah, she was know, into boys at that point. <laughs> so that might have been, you know, something that's flattering. Yeah, you know? like if a, a kid who was a later, an older teenager. Yeah. Um, so now we are at the corner of 4th and Maple, and on the opposite side of is one of our P.O eyes, people of interests, places, and we just want to talk about this a little bit. Yeah, so now this guy, he wasn't actually, he wasn't named for quite a while. So this guy has a business right on the corner of 4th and Maple, and it's come to our attention that obviously Lindsay knew him and he knew Lindsay, and he kind of inserted himself into the investigation. She used to go into the store a lot, and she and her friends used to go into the store a lot, and this store has a vault in the back. Yeah, that's what I had heard from an employee. Um, an employee of his, a previous employee, had told me that there was a, it's a safe vault, so that's where, you know, he would keep all of his valuables. Um, and this person also said that he had a surveillance camera system that showed the inside and the outside of the store, and he kept the doors locked at all times. That's interesting. So he did have surveillance. Do you know whether they checked that surveillance? I don't believe so. I never saw it in any of the search warrants or anything, but I don't believe that they have any sort of surveillance footage from there. No. His place was probably the only place that might have actually caught Lindsay on camera because we're now approaching the Shell station, which is infamous in this case. Absolutely. The uh, sheriff and the police chief all sort of came out and said, there's no way she made it to the Shell station. She's not on the footage. Sort of a problem, though, because the one camera, and I can see it from here, is pointed at the pumps. It's not pointed at the crosswalk or anywhere down Maple where you would have seen her walking up. So she would have actually had to, like, enter into the gas station and walk through the pumps to be seen. 
Yeah. And now we're coming up to 3rd, which is basically a big thoroughfare in McCleary. It's the main street. Yeah. And uh, so not if on we're, camera. we're still not on camera, and nope. we're, cro we're never going to be on camera. No. no. That camera no. can't see shit. Yeah. We're passing the place where she would have left the bike. Now, that's actually the reason why we know she didn't make it here, I guess. Yeah, because if she thought she was in trouble, wouldn't she have picked up the bike and brought it home? Or would she? Or would she? I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> she, was also, yeah. Uh, she was also wearing a sweatshirt. And yeah. we're both wearing sweatshirts today. Yes. And what happens when you pull your sweatshirt up oh. is that you lose all your peripheral vision. To the right, to the left, behind you especially, you can't see anything. One friend specifically said that she could, when she heard what Lindsay was wearing when she went missing, she could just see her walking down the road with her hoodie pulled up and miserable. The, uh, the dress of the Pacific Northwest, even for being hot out, you still have your hoodie. So if somebody came up behind her, like I've got my hoodie up, I wouldn't see anything. I'm going to walk up yeah. behind. Nothing, nothing, nothing. No, I'm waving my arms behind you. <laughs> I can't see like, shit. Have you stabbed me yet? Right? Nope, not yet. Oh, here I come. <laughs> I have to get to this point where I'm actually She's in basically front of in you. front of me in order yeah. for me to see her. And so, long story long, Lindsay, if she had her hoodie up, could easily have been taken from behind. And there Absolutely. is one of our suspects has a thing about taking girls and using their hoodies to cover their eyes. We're coming up on her house again. Yep. Right over here. Oh, yep. okay. And here are the dogs. How is this different than where you grew up? Um, you know, I mean, it's, but nobody ever worried about, I mean, because you thought you knew everybody in that small town. People, <laughs> people keep secrets, and especially in small towns, and for whatever their intent is on it, whether they just want everybody to forget that this ever happened, or if, you know, they're lying by admission because they don't want to drag their family's name through something, people will keep their mouth shut. One of the main things I came away with after taking that walk with Tracy is how hard it would be to take Lindsay off of Maple without being seen. According to Melissa, she was wearing black ballet-type slippers. I think they were Tom's. And if she was grabbed off the street by anyone, even the driver of that SUV we mentioned, you'd think she'd lose a shoe, and the perp wouldn't have time to stop and pick it up. It just makes luring seem more likely, and as a result, it makes it more likely that the perp was a local. The McCleary Police Department isn't anything like the kind of department you'd see in a city like Seattle or New York. It's a small operation with limited funding and only a few officers, largely committed to enforcing traffic laws and resolving civil cases. Criminal cases are referred to the county sheriff's office, in this case, the Grace Harbor Sheriff's Department. However, when Lindsay was first missing for only about an hour, Melissa sought assistance from the McCleary Police Department. Officer Graham, who was on duty that evening, didn't respond immediately. It was a good half an hour later that he rolled up at Melissa's house because he had been in nearby Elma putting his children to bed. This would later make him a potential suspect in the eyes of certain online sleuths, something that other investigators, as well as this podcaster, doesn't find credible. At around 11.30 p.m., Graham and other McCleary police officers got to work searching for the missing child. 
In the early morning hours of June 27, 2009, with still no sign of Lindsay, the McCleary PD called in the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Department. By 6 a.m., the FBI had been called in as well. And now, local law enforcement has been joined by the FBI. Our investigators deal with these on a, a daily, monthly, weekly basis where there are um, allegations or actual child abductions that do happen. Lindsay and her friends had all been uh, playing with their, with their other playmates and uh, running around town as was the norm for them on a summer day. She disappeared um, completely. My daughter's name is Lindsay Jo Palm. My child disappeared and with her my heart. I can't sleep or eat without her here. Every waking moment of my life without her is agony. There was good reason to look into the runaway theory. For one thing, Lindsay had just had a fight with her brother. Maybe she wanted to cool off for a while. Or maybe she had run away to Forks, Washington, where her beloved Twilight books and movies were based. But it seemed unlikely that the 10-year-old would have run away without any money or her phone. Melissa Baum also said that her daughter was terrified of the dark and wouldn't even go outside to fetch stuff from the car at night. Investigators also looked into Lindsay's father, Scott Baum. They figured maybe Scott had abducted the 10-year-old. They quickly discovered, however, that Scott was on an army base in Tennessee, about to deploy to Iraq. It seemed unlikely that he had anything to do with his daughter's disappearance. They then turned their attention to the most obvious suspect in the disappearance of a child, the custodial parent, Melissa. They weren't alone. No sooner had Lindsay gone missing than rumors ran wild in McCleary that her mother was responsible for the little girl's disappearance. In response to an article about the case, a neighbor of Melissa's claimed that Lindsay had run to her house frequently, trying to get away either from Melissa or Josh, or both. This comment had online sleuths buzzing. Was Josh responsible for his sister's disappearance? Had he done something that Melissa had then covered up? Since rumors of Josh and Melissa's involvement persist to this day, I believe it's worth a closer look to see if this suspicion is actually warranted. Let's go over the timeline. Josh was sent home by the family friend at about 9.30 p.m. This is confirmed by phone records we have access to. Assuming it took Josh about 10 minutes to get home, he would have been with Melissa from about 9.40 p.m. onwards. Lindsay headed home at about 9.40 p.m. If she'd made it home, this would have placed her there at around 9.50 p.m. If Melissa and or Josh was involved, they would have had about an hour to kill and hide the body of this child before Melissa called the police at 10.50 p.m. to report Lindsay missing. That's an extremely tight time frame within which to kill a child, clean up the crime scene, and then hide her body, especially without a functioning vehicle. The final nail in the coffin of Josh and Melissa's culpability comes when you consider the body disposal location. Ellensburg, where Lindsay's remains were found, is a good two-hour drive from McCleary. It's simply impossible that Melissa could have been involved in either the killing or disposal of her daughter's body, given she had neither the time nor the car with which to do it. 
Melissa also took a lie detector test, and she passed. Lindsay's MySpace activity was also looked into. As we know, pedophiles sometimes stalk their victims online, often posing as children or teens themselves. A close look at search warrants issued in the case showed that Lindsay had been talking to someone named David through a game called Yoville. But again, based on the warrants, once investigators looked into David, it was established that he was based elsewhere and he wasn't responsible for the little girl's disappearance. The last people to see a victim are, generally speaking, looked at pretty closely by police. Such was definitely the case with Kayla's mother, Kara, and Kara's boyfriend, Scott. However, cops pretty quickly realized that, much like Melissa, Kara and Scott simply didn't have the time to execute a crime like this. Additionally, Scott took a polygraph and, like Melissa, passed. Kara offered to take a polygraph, but was never given one. Kara is haunted, to this day, by what happened to Lindsay. She spent untold hours helping to search for the child, and as a blogger herself, Kara couldn't help but be aware of the online interest in the case, and she scoured the blogs. Despite the fact that many of these same blogs were viewing her as a suspect, Kara engaged with them in what seemed to be good faith. She addressed the suspicion being cast on her own family on the forum, Scared Monkeys. I believe the basis of this forum is supposed to be supportive, not trying to throw blame, but instead provide support and also discuss ways of trying to get this missing teen home safely. I understand sometimes trying to dig out information, and hopefully leads and ideas mean sometimes hitting where it hurts. Please remember that above all else, there is a child missing. It was my house she left, and no one can change the fact that I did not walk her home, regardless of how light it was outside. And that guilt eats me alive and haunts me every minute that ticks by. I wish it would have been dark out when she left because then I would have walked her home and we wouldn't be here right now. If I could change things, I wouldn't a heartbeat, but I can't now. As for Lindsay's mom, she doesn't have a car, but when she did, Lindsay never had to walk home in the dark and she wouldn't. Her mom was always right there to pick her up. What ifs do nothing more then make a tough situation more difficult for those of us who love Lindsay, and they won't help to bring her home. What if one of the 2,000 McCleary residents would have been outside and seen her? If I had walked her home? If I had let her stay the night? If someone close had had a car? If it was one minute earlier, later? If it was five minutes later, earlier? it was dark outside when she left, if she had been walking with someone, if police would have been patrolling that area, if every sicko out there wasn't allowed a second chance, if she had remembered to bring her phone, if the police would have called for help before so much time had passed. And that's the thing. It's something that we don't think about until after something happens. All those what ifs 
What if one thing could change everything? What if? Tonight, police and the FBI prepare to step up their efforts to answer the burning question, where's Lindsay? Based on the search warrants that we've been able to acquire, once investigators had cleared the most obvious suspects, they turned their attention to the registered sex offenders in the area. And there were a lot. But even though online sleuths dug deep into these people and several had their places searched by the police, Nothing came of the RSO angle. Despite the failure of the registry to provide a suspect, McCleary turned out to have several viable local creeps, so much so that one of the local McCleary police officers confessed to Melissa that, I found out more about the people in this town and the shit they get up to than I ever wanted to know. One person who they learned more shit than they wanted to know about was a camp host at the local ORV park. This guy was called in as a tip after he showed some underage seeming pornography to some other guys at the Eagles Club. That's a bar. He has a grandson Lindsay's age, and he apparently met Lindsay one day, and he told his grandson, well done with that one. When law enforcement came to speak to him, he said they could search his RV. He then went on to say, but I bought this second hand, so who knows what's in the walls? Law enforcement decided maybe they should take a look at the walls, but there was nothing in them. While retracing Lindsay's steps on the day she disappeared, detectives stumbled upon a man we'll call Rex. Rex was seen on footage at the Shell station along Lindsay's route at the same time she would have been walking home. Rex would have been on Maple at the same time as Lindsay was. However, he claimed he didn't remember making the walk because he was dead drunk at the time. What Rex did remember, however, piqued the interest of the cops. It turned out Rex lived in the house next to the one where Lindsay had attended the pool party. On the day of the party, Rex had been hanging out in his yard. Questioned by detectives, Rex gave a pretty detailed account of the pool party. He had noticed what the little girls were wearing and the general ebb and flow of events. While he seemed a little bit too interested in a bunch of 10-year-olds, he was eventually cleared in the case. Investigators then looked into whether Lindsay may have gone over to another friend's place after leaving Kayla's. As Tracy mentioned in the walk, there was some early talk of the dogs following Lindsay's tracks from Kayla's place and turning right onto Maple, so it didn't seem a stretch. Investigators quickly determined that Lindsay's friend and the friend's grandma were home watching TV that night and they had seen no sign of Lindsay. The friend's father wasn't quite so fortunate. He lived in an RV at the top of the driveway and therefore could have lured the child before she even reached the house. When push came to shove, however, investigators weren't able to scare up a case against Lindsay's friend's father, so they moved on. Besides, they already had a very strong suspect in McCleary. On the evening of July 31st, 2009, Melissa Baum noticed that a white Honda Del Sol was tailing her around McCleary. The experience was frightening, especially given that Lindsay had reported a white car following her before she went missing. Melissa was able to provide a license plate number to the police. The plate came back to a local 23-year-old frequent flyer, 
well known to authorities. The frequent flyer was on police radar from early on in the case, well before Melissa brought him to their attention. According to the search warrants, when the frequent flyer was about 14 years old, he'd been looked into for sexual assault of a 12-year-old. Apparently, the frequent flyer had been babysitting the 12-year-old and a younger brother at the time, and had decided to screen some pornography for the pair. The frequent flyer then took the 12-year-old into a bedroom and locked the door, refusing to release her for two hours. The 12-year-old didn't press charges, but her age and the incident made the frequent flyer of immediate interest to the cops. And the frequent flyer had more than a history of disturbing behavior. He had means and opportunity. For one thing, he worked at the Beehive, the care center located on Maple that Lindsay would have passed. As we discussed earlier, there are empty apartments with doorsteps right on Maple Street at that center. Might the frequent flyer have been hanging out at the Beehive and lured Lindsay into one such apartment? Or had the handsome young man pulled up beside Lindsay in his white Dell soul and offered the 10-year-old a lift? Maybe he'd driven her out to the large piece of timbered property outside McCleary, assaulted her, killed her, then hit her body. And the more the cops dug, the more suspicious the guy seemed. Upon looking into his phone records, they discovered that while he had been texting incessantly the whole day, all phone activities ceased at 9.30 p.m., just before Lindsay went missing. Cell activity started up again at 6.12 a.m. the next morning, just the right amount of time to have carried out a kidnapping and likely murder. Finally, he was said to have texted a friend that Lindsay was dead already, cut up into pieces, and dropped into a crab pot. Oh yeah, and that friend the frequent flyer was texting? Well, she lived in Ellensburg, and if that town sounds familiar, it should. In 2017, Lindsay Baum's remains were recovered just outside of Ellensburg. The frequent flyer was one of the main people I wanted to talk to when I decided to tackle the case again, and after a lot of back and forth, we finally made contact. Hello, my name is Dale Golder. Tune in next week for this suspect's first ever interview about the case. Oh, and remember the 2003 rape we mentioned earlier? Well, we'll have an update for you on that as well. Thanks for listening to Truth in the Shadow. If you want to follow along, you can find us at our website at truthintheshadow.com or we have an Instagram, Truth in the Shadow, or on Facebook, Truth in the Shadow Podcast.